Welcome to episode 87 of Africa Past and Present, the podcast about African history, culture, and politics. I'm Peter Alegi. I'm Peter Lim, and our special guest today is Dr. Chicha Twala, Senior Lecturer in History at the University of the Free State, where he is part of the Vice-Chancellor's Prestige Scholarship Program. He obtained his PhD from that university, and his research fields include South African political and liberation movement history and cultural history. He has published widely in these fields. Dr. Twala is on the editorial board of the Journal for Contemporary History and Yesterday and Today. Welcome. Thank you very much, Peter. One of the ways that we like to start our conversations is by asking our guests how they became scholars in their particular field. So what was it like growing up in apartheid South Africa on the border between the Free State and Natal, and how did you become a historian? Uh, thank you very much, Peter. Uh, I grew up in Harrismith. I was born and bred in Harrismith, which is at the border of Natal and the Free State. Uh, some few kilometers from Ladysmith and some few kilometers from the former Bantu stand or former homeland of Kwakwa, which was basically a Sutu-speaking homeland. Uh, I schooled in Harrismith until matriculating in 1986. And from there, I went to Peter Marisbeck, where I studied to become a teacher. And I came back to work as a teacher in a place known as Warden, which is about... Uh, 60 kilometers from Harrismith. And I had uh, that enthusiasm of, of furthering my studies, even after getting my secondary teacher's diploma. And that is when I decided, uh, after teaching for three years, to go to Bloemfontein, which is the capital city of the Free State Province, to further my studies. And I decided to major in, in education and history. And I developed that love for, for history until I enrolled for a PhD and got a PhD in history. Uh, just to mention that it was not easy to be a student under the apartheid regime or under the apartheid era uh, because most of the different things would happen at school level one, uh, the kind of the curriculum or the content which was taught during uh, that time was not the same as the content which was taught to the white students in South Africa. Therefore, we, we had that feeling that although we were getting this kind of education in South Africa, but in one way or the other, it was an inferior education. But some of us, we said to ourselves and through the motivation by some of our teachers that in order to understand the mentality of the apartheid government, we needed also to, to do what was needed of us in order to get educated. And it is through education that we could understand Africans and then we could understand apartheid as an ideology. And then it was also going to be easy for us to can rebel from within rather than to rebel from outside. Therefore, it was not that easy to be a student under the apartheid era. Secondly, in some instances, you'll get that at school level, you have teachers who are teachers during the day, but who are police reserves during the night. And then when by accident we do have some political meetings or some 
some events which were politically aligned. You'll get some of the very same people who were your teachers during the day. You'll find them wearing uh, army uniform during the night. Uh, we, here we are referring to mainly uh, white teachers because in our township schools, we had also white teachers. Then it was not that easy to be a student during that time. That's really interesting. Can I just follow that up by asking you about Afrikaans? Because obviously the free state is a is the heartland of Afrikanerdom. And wh what's it like to grow up in an Afrikaans-speaking context, at least in the professional sense? And uh, can, can you share your own feelings towards the language that so many of us sometimes still refer to as the language of the oppressor? Without any doubt, Free State is a rural province dominated by African-speaking people, not in a true sense of domination in, in percentage-wise, but in terms of the language which was used in the Free State, it was an African's language. And uh, very few, I, I, I would like to believe, people who grew up in the Free State don't know Africans, either to read or to, to write it. Uh, it was it was just normal to speak Africans, and at the same time, although we we experienced Africans as the language of the oppressor, but we believed that in order to understand the culture and the mentality of the Africaners, we needed also to to speak their language. But I want to believe that that was also to our advantage, because we could understand what they were trying to say, and what were they were trying to do to us, and the opposite was not beneficial to them because they couldn't understand Zulu, they couldn't understand Sotho. Then we, we took that advantage of speaking Africans, although we didn't want to, but at, at some point and to a certain level, it was a language which was used at school level. Although when I came to school, to high school, uh, Africans was not a compulsory language whereby you could do your, your main subjects like history known as Cheskidenes, like geography at Riskende. We, we, we could do our content subjects in English, but Africans was the language until metric, and then I had to do Africans until metric. I am conversant in Africans. I, I can Africans, but I can speak Africans, fluently so. That reminds me that uh, this week you were telling me that when you recently called up some archival documents from the National Archives on on the history of black politics in the ANC in the Free State, uh, a lot of them were in, in Afrikaans. But I also remember that we first met in 1998 uh, at the University of the Western Cape Conference of what was then the South African Historical Society. They've now uh, transformed that to Southern African Historical Society. And then I remember you mentioned you were working on the Thomas Toby Mapikela House Museum and. Uh, Thomas Mapikela was one of the, the leading figure in the ANC in your province. And since then, you've become a leading historian of black politics. Uh, when we think of uh, the history of the ANC, the history of black politics in the free state, we think first of you. And now we find ourselves working together on this theme now. And I was wondering if you could briefly sketch some of the highs and lows of the history of the ANC and black politics in the free state. Thank you very much, Peter. I recalled in 1998 when we met, we were talking about Thomas Mtobi Mapigela. And Thomas Mtobi Mapigela was one of the founding fathers of the ANC. 
1912. And he became the speaker of the ANC for more than 20 years because of his fluency in terms of languages across us through to uh, China. And then I want to believe that is why he became the speaker of the ANC for, for such a long time. And in the Free State, in Bloemfontein particularly, there is a house uh, which was built by Thomas Mtobi Mabigela himself between 1918 or 1919 to 1923. He was a builder. And he was a builder. In he fact. was a builder and mm. carpenter himself. Mm. And there are some allegations that the NC was founded in that house, but I usually dispute that because the NC was founded in Vihook in 1912, and the house was built a little bit later when the black people were removed from Vihook across. Uh, the railway line into what is known today as the Batu location or Batu Township. And then Thomas Mtobima Pigela had two houses in Vaihuk. And then when he came to the new location, he was not allowed to build two houses. And that is why he managed to build a, a double-story house. Mm -hmm. That means he had to build one house on top of the other in order to compensate him for the two houses that were demolished in Vaihuk. And that is very, very interesting about the history of, of the Free State. And coming to the history of the NC in the Free State, I think there, is, there are some gaps in terms of what has been documented in as far as the history of the NC is concerned in the Free State, especially the early years of the NC. And there is that lacuna in terms of uh, information pertaining to the history of the NC. And then also highlighting people like Thomas and Toby Mabigala, the role they played, uh, highlighting people like uh, Marty, for example, highlighting people like Joseph Dwai, for example, highlighting people like Mata Mutakwane, uh, who was the leading role in terms of women politics in the Free State, Irene Nkoshongwane, for example, Preti Mulatule, those were the leading people in the Free State, J.B. Mafura, uh, Gabriel Dichabe. We need also to unpack that kind of history, which is little documented. Perhaps this is little documented because uh, in the Free State there was no specific black newspaper like it used to happen to other to other regions. Uh, and that could have contributed also to this uh, information not being widely publicized. Secondly, one other reason could have been the journalists would also concentrate in areas like uh, uh, Guazulu, for example, uh, the, the, the PWV area, and they'll concentrate in places like the Eastern Cape and Cape Town and forgetting about what was happening in the Free State. Perhaps that that was the reason that the Free State could lack in terms of having documented information about the Free State itself. But the other reason could have been Free State being the bastion of, of Afrikanerdom. Uh, perhaps the journalists wouldn't want to go to the Free State in fear of being arrested or in fear of a, a, a victimization by, by, by the then special branch. That could be the reason why the Free State is lacking. But we do have information in, in the different archives of the Free State and different archives uh, in South Africa, the National Archive, whereby we can tap and get some information on the Free State. But when you interview some of these people, they'll tell you that they had these uh, uh, letters or documents, but because of being afraid of the police, some of these documents were confiscated by the police, and some of the documents they had to hide them. And after returning from their jail arrest or after serving their jail terms, when they come back home, they find that 
the documents are destroyed. And either the documents were destroyed by the police or the documents were destroyed by the family members because of harassment by the police. And perhaps that explains why do we have why we do have these gaps in terms of the Free State ANC's history. Not only the ANC's history, but also in terms of the PAC. Because the Free State, it is at the border of Lesotho and at the border of Lechwana, of Botswana. Therefore, it was easy for Free Staters to skip their country into Lesotho and to skip their country into, into, into Botswana. But the police would victimize the family members and the family members under pressure, sometimes they would budge and indicate where the person had gone to. And uh, one of the ways in which you have been able to start plugging these gaps to fill this vacuum in, in black history in the Free State is, is these interviews you just mentioned. And you've done a lot of interviews. You, were, you wrote several chapters in the monumental Sadet or South African Democracy Education volumes and uh, in those chapters, you drew heavily on uh, on a mass of uh, oral history. And I was just wondering if you could uh, speak about the sorts of insights into history uh, that all those interviews uh, gave you as a historian. I think the interviews played a very significant role, despite having archival material on, on the history of the NC. And despite also relying on the newspaper then, which was called The Friend in the Free State, uh, one had to tap into interviews. And the interviews were so helpful in order to bridge the gap, in order to give much more information on what happened during the period under discussion. And although uh, when one considers considering using interviews, there are some of the information from the interviewees whereby you can easily detect as a historian that this information is falsified. Or sometimes you get a person who, who played a significant role, perhaps during the King visit in 1947 in, in Bloemfontein, a person who was 13 years old then. Uh, when you interview a person today, obviously uh, there is a lapse in terms of memory. And those are the challenges one would get. And sometimes you get the challenges whereby people, when conducting interviews, they tend to, to, to romanticize and to patronize this kind of history. All people whom you interview, they tend to be heroes and they don't tend to be victims. And sometimes you get people who were told the stories, and but when they portray the stories to you, as an interviewer, they portray the stories as if they were part and parcel of the happenings during the day. Therefore, it is also important that when you are, if you are a historian and you conduct oral uh, testimonies and get in interviews, it is important that one should also uh, 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 draw that line and try by all means to get the relevant information as possible. But we managed successfully so to do that for the Sadat project. Hence, in my chapters for the Sadat, I tapped into uh, the experiences of the individuals. Not only the individuals who were within the country, and also the individuals who skipped the country, how they masterminded to skip the country, and what was their experiences outside the country, and then what was the the expectation when they came after the unbending of the NC in 1990 and is uh, what did they expected are they realizing it today and then we managed to get that kind of information which was very very valuable for us related to that uh, what about the uh, the cultural or the linguistic aspects because in your excellent talk on Wednesday to the African Studies Center here at Michigan State you started talking about the 
um, idiomatic nature of African languages. And um, I'm write, writing on this myself at the moment with regard to uh, African attitudes to empire in Mbongi, the, the praise poets. And, uh, and you've also written about toy toy and these sorts of things. So I was wondering when you were doing these interviews, whether there was a, whether there were issues of not so much translation, but um, rendering the testimony of of people who lived through these momentous decades, uh, in terms of the way they may have described uh, various events. I mean, speaking in different languages, speaking about dance, about protests, about leaders, and so on and so forth. What about this sort of cultural dimension? Uh, Toy Toy and maybe poets, oral poets in Bongi, that sort of thing. Yes, w- w- when interviewing these people, we 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 were cautious of of the question of language, uh, but we wanted people to express themselves, and the only way that people could express themselves fully, it was to give them that leeway of using their own languages. We interviewed some people. Uh, although preferably we would have wanted people to be interviewed in English, but most of the interviews were in English. But we we also gave people that leeway of saying we can interview them in Zulu, we can interview them in Sisutu, in Sichuana, and in Xhosa, and that also enhanced our our production in order to understand. Because when a person speaks in his in own language, that is where you can tap much more information, and that we successfully did. Although the challenge to that was some of these African languages are much more idiomatic languages. Uh, For example, in English, you'll say good morning to a person when you start an interview. And a person in Sesut will say to you, the homo. And the homo simply means cows, which is synonymous to say good morning. But it was because it is during the morning and the people are taking their cows out of their crop for feeding in the in, in the fields, then the person will say the homo. And then you'll you'll respond by saying Therefore, by saying simply means the cows and their calves. And then that means I am acknowledging that it is during the day. And those are idiomatic languages. Sometimes you say when you greet a person, you say dumela instead of saying dumelang. Sometimes you say dumela or you say dumelang, which is plural. That means when I greet you and say dumelang, I am greeting you plus your other family members who are not here. Therefore, you, you, you get that information when you are to, 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 to interview a person. Uh, coming to the question of culture, coming to the question of, of dances, poems, South Africa is rich in that regard. Uh, in the Free State, we had one leading poet, for example, Flexman Kopani, who could translate the political events in a form of a poem, like what Mzokembuli is doing. Mm. And uh, we had also stage plays. People could go for a stage play. And I remember while I was still growing up in Harrismith, there was a stage play that was called No Sounds of Joy. And it was until late uh, when I was at the university, I could understand uh, the meaning of no sounds of joy. That being growing up or being a black person in South Africa, being an African in South Africa, there was nothing to be joyful of because of the apartheid system. 
And then when looking back to the stage you play, No Sound of Joy, the one can tap into and understand that. And in Bloemfontein, for example, we had Klein Mahasa Hall. We had Mahasa Hall in Batu Township. We had uh, Batu Community Hall, whereby people could converge and do some dances and do some traditional uh, dances and poems poems which were aligned to the liberation struggle and that would conscientize many people but immediately when the police could tap into that and understand that this was not more of a poem it was more of a political message people would get arrested that's very interesting it reminds me of the genres like Katamia, you know and the use of religious symbolism about uh, liberation and and um equality and you know the heaven that awaits which of course was political enfranchisement in many respects uh, and the censors didn't quite know how to handle that even though they knew what the messaging was really about they couldn't censor christianity after all they were christian nationalists or so they claimed um, but this question of oral history is fascinating to me because it seems like it opens up so many rich veins uh, about the past in South Africa. It's also helped us understand South Africa's history much more fully and holistically. And yet a lot of young people in particular, but I would say this is true also of adults, don't seem to read a lot of history, history, particularly academic history. And they also don't seem to take a lot of courses in history at the university. When I was teaching at the University of KwaZulu-Natal, the classes was relatively small given the population at the university. And, and of course, we've been hearing a lot about crisis in history in South Africa for many years. I think it's eased somewhat. Uh, what is your take on the academic discipline of, of history in South Africa's mm. universities? Mm. Uh, and where is it going? Uh, I think you are spot on. After 1994, uh, the former Model C schools, uh, by referring to the former Model C schools, we are referring to uh, those schools which were predominantly white schools, uh, started to do away with, with the teaching of history. Uh, one reason of doing away with the teaching of history was that the history that we wanted to, 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 to teach in South African schools included the liberation history, uh, moving away from the great track, moving away from the arrival of Jan van Riebeck in April 1652 to, to incorporate the history of liberation. And one might believe that uh, the schools thought that now their kids were going to be taught this terrorist history, which they didn't want them to know. But that happened for, for about a decade. But I can, I can easily guarantee you now that the numbers of history are picking up now. From high school level at the university, when I started at the university uh, in, 20, in 2003, uh, we had relatively small classes. But I can tell you now that for first year group, we've got more than 275 uh, students who are taking history. And then it goes up, it goes up like that. Uh, history is, is, is gradually coming back to, to the footing that we'd like to see it there. And there is a move by the South African uh, Democratic Teachers Union that uh, South African history should be made compulsory 
compulsory in South Africa. I think that will be taken over by all the officials in terms of basic education as to whether is it possible to make South African history a compulsory subject. Because I want to believe that a nation without a positive history, it is a doomed nation. And people who don't know their history, they are also doomed. It is unwise for me to come to America and tell you about American history, but not knowing my South African history, where I come from. It is unwise to tell you about Churchill and to tell you about Obama without telling you about Tabombegi, without telling you about Mandela, without telling you about Zuma. Therefore, it is important that history should go to its to its roots. And then we are trying by all means to do so. With all these publications that we are trying to, to put forth in terms of SADAT, we are pushing uh, uh, the, the barriers too in order to, to break this barrier of saying students should come and do history. And also, uh, there was this mentality uh, 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 perpetuated by, by some of, of, of the government officials and by some of, of those leading in education would say, what are you going to do with history? And, but if you can go and tap into their certificates, most of those people did history at school level mm -hmm. and at the university level, but today they are changing the language. And then we need those people to change their heart because in no way that you can understand the political dynamics of South Africa without understanding the history of South Africa. In no way that you can understand the economy of South Africa without understanding the history of South Africa. You, in no way that you can understand what is going to happen in the future and what is happening now without it into the past. Therefore, it is important that South Africans themselves should stand up and tell their stories. We've got a good story to tell as South Africans. It's remarkable how similar this discussion is to what we're having in this country, where there is a veritable assault on the humanities and the social sciences for, for very much the same reasons that you were describing, you know, this, this sort of skepticism uh, coming in South Africa from, from the top. And yeah, it's, it's, it's a struggle that we're fighting here as well for, mm -hmm. for those very same reasons that you just discussed. Maybe we can go sideways and uh, after you leave Michigan State, you are not long back home and you have to hop on another plane and head to another cold climate, uh, to Osaka in Japan, to a uh, conference on conflict. And uh, you were telling us you were going to speak on on the Marikana massacre, the killings at uh, the mining town um, in South Africa in 2012. And, uh, could you speak briefly to that and maybe some of the lessons of the killings? Hmm. I think the question of Marikana in South Africa, it is an emotional, it is an emotional one. Uh, it reminds us of the Sharpville shooting. Because here we are talking about the police who shot on the miners. And the similarities could be drawn with what happened on the 21st of March 1960, whereby the police shot on, on the protesters in Sharpville. Uh, the only difference here might be that now we are talking about the South African police service, not the South African police of the apartheid era. The country was in shock with the Marigana massacre because these miners were just demanding a pay of 12,500 per month. In view of the fact that the very same miners are raking in millions of rents in terms of the profit 
through the minds. Uh, to me, not to give people 12,500 for a living per month, it was irresponsible. And that's in Rand, so it's only about $1,000 a month. Yes. Not a lot of money. And to me, I think that was irresponsible. And also, for the people not to take full responsibility of what transpired on the third day, it is also a million-dollar question to the conscious of those police who shot those minors. And thirdly, uh, I would want also to, to see the ANC's government coming up strongly condemning such activities. Although in, in, in certain quarters, in certain angles, the government uh, condemned that, and that is why we've got the Falam Commission, which is investigating the whole uh, question of Marigana. I would want to see those who performed or uh, were engaged in such acts uh, brought it to book in order to have a violent, free kind of a society, which is a South African society. We cannot continue as if we are still fighting the apartheid government with uh, people being shot at with live ammunition. We need also, when there are problems in the mining sector or in any other sector whereby workers are involved, negotiation should precede any other form of toy or any other form of a massacre like the Marikana one. Uh, I hope that we'll get some closure after the, the commission uh, of inquiry has uh, uh, investigated everything and those who are alleged to, to have played a significant role in that regard will be brought to book. It is so unfortunate that some of the senior uh, people in government are implicated in this regard. Building on these contemporary tensions within South Africa, the University of the Free State, uh, where you teach, uh, is a place that's often associated with the bastion of Afrikanerdom, a bit like Stellenbosch or Pretoria. It was not too long ago that I remember that the video that went viral on the internet uh, depicting four white male students uh, mistreating African workers uh, at one of the residences there, even going to the extent of forcing them to eat meat that was supposedly had been urinated on. Uh, you have one of the most progressive vice chancellors, what we would call president in, in, in North America, in Jonathan Jansen, who's well known for his agenda of transformation. Uh, what has changed at the University of the Free State and what has not changed from your perspective? Oh, yeah. The question of transformation is a buzzword in South Africa today. And I would say the investor of the Free State started transforming itself or pleasing itself by calling itself the investor of the Free State and not the investor of the Orange Free State. We managed to do away with all the oranges mm -hmm. that were attached to, 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 the, to the investor itself. And I'll say you, uh, despite the pockets of incidences like the one you referred to of the race incident, it is just one of those incidents which brought us back to the question of racism on campus. And that happened before Professor Jonathan Johnson was appointed as the vice chancellor of the university. And then since Professor Johnson came to the fore, although he was criticized by pardoning those students, 
but I think he was extending a hand of friendship, of saying, even if these students did that, but they are still students. They need to learn. We need to move forward. And hence today, I can safely say to you, both the workers who were ill-treated by those students and the students themselves, they have made peace. And the university has helped these uh, workers to form their, to establish their own company, cleaning company, which is cleaning one of our campuses, the South Campus in Bloemfontein. And then they are now entrepreneurs, the very same uh, people who were uh, uh, victims of uh, this racism. But one also needed to indicate that uh, South Africa has got a long history of a racial divide. And then we cannot overnight to wipe everything out. Uh, we are still going to have such pockets of, of racism. But uh, I can guarantee you that the investor of the free state is on the right track in terms of addressing such, such problems such as racism. And fortunately, our students uh, nowadays are the students who were at school level from grade R to metric level, black and white. And then when they come to the university, they are not like ours, who were in different schooling uh, systems. Therefore, they know each other. They know how to appreciate each other. I would say when, in 1996, when I started uh, uh, enrolling for an honors degree at the University of the Free State, I recall I entered one 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 office uh, belonging to a white old lady. And then immediately after entering the office, and then I looked for the nearest chair, and then I sat it down. And the lady said to me, who said you must sit down? It is because the lady didn't understand my culture that as a black African, I cannot enter your office and stand waiting for you to give me a chair to offer me a, a seat. Culturally, I needed to enter and sit down as a sign of respect. But to the lady, it was seen as a sign of disrespect. Mm -hmm. Therefore, it is important that in order to understand each other, we need also to understand each other's culture. From my side, as a black South African, when I am talking to somebody who is an elder to me, I need not to look directly at that particular individual through the eyes. To other people's culture, if you don't look at a person directly into their eyes, then there is something that you are hiding. You might even lose a job in an interview that you were failing to have that eye contact. Therefore, it is important for us to understand each other in order to bridge, to bridge that gap. But I can safely say South Africa, the investor of the free state, is on the right track in terms of addressing these issues. One other thing that we handled it professionally as the university. I think it is the question of a language. Because other people have thought that uh, the investor of the free state will do away with Africans as a language of instruction. Africans is still there as a language of instruction. English is still there as a language of instruction. Therefore, we've got this parallel kind of, of, of language uh, of instruction at the university. And students are free to attend whatever. If you want to attend the English class, you can attend the English class. If you want to attend the African class, you can attend the African class. And that is why, since the incident of raids, we've got stability uh, uh, on our campus till today. And then we are moving forward in that right direction.
And as a grand finale, I now invite you both to recite your Isibongo, your praise poems. It's the tradition, after all, to recite your own. Upita gapita, upita wasitaliana, genendawen yogutlali bola, indawen cheyago. His catch songs here kumbula lap, uligabi bolon cobe. Jengombani utoli kuzeline, uligabi bolon cobe, i kuzeline. Uligabi bolon cobe, jengombani utoli kuzeline. Utwala umzimkulu, wanaswell wam kondua duma. Uduma njengezulu, we nantombe mabele mate, wakamnyangwa uvalwa, uvalwa ngamakanda madota. Thank you both. Well, I think that's a, a positive note on which to end this fascinating conversation. We've tackled so many different topics and I'd like to thank you, uh, Dr. Chichatrala, for joining us on Africa Past and Present. Thank you very much for your time and also for listening to me. Africa Past and Present is a co-production of Matrix, the Center for Digital Humanities and Social Sciences, and the Department of History at Michigan State University. Technical assistance is provided by the Matrix Digital Media Lab. For more information and to subscribe to the podcast, visit our website at afropod.aodl.org. The podcast is also available on iTunes. You can also send us email at Africa podcast at matrix.msu.edu. Thanks for listening.